Hello and welcome to AllianceMagazine.org and the Alliance Audio Podcast. I'm Charles Keaton, editor of Alliance, the magazine and website with news, views and analysis of philanthropy worldwide. Today we're recording live from the European Foundation Centre Conference here in Brussels, where we're discussing philanthropy, the media and fake news. In our December 2017 issue, guest edited by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Miguel Castro, we looked in depth at that relationship. And in a provocative article entitled Mutually Assured Survival, Castro set out the reasons why philanthropy and the media don't just work together, they need each other to survive. He argued that a strong, trusted and well-resourced media is at the heart of a free society, which is essential for the well-being, not just of philanthropy, but of democracy itself. If the health of our media really matters, it follows that philanthropy has a responsibility. Some might say a duty to foster new and sustainable models of journalism in the public interest. So should foundations be doing more in the media sphere? And what exactly should they be doing, including to combat the phenomenon of fake news? And to discuss these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by two practitioners doing cutting edge work in this area, Patrice Schneider and Lisa Maria Neudert. Lisa Maria is a DPhil candidate at the Oxford Internet Institute and conducts research for the Computational Propaganda Project, an Oxford University project which looks at the interaction of algorithms, automation and politics. Hello, Lisa. Hello. And Patrice is the Chief Strategy Officer at the Media Development Investment Fund, which invests in independent media around the world. Hello, Patrice. Hello. If I can start with you, Patrice, you wrote in um, that Alliance special feature that there are two main challenges facing the media. One is sustaining revenue over the long term, but the other is maintaining the independence of the media from external influence, including from philanthropists themselves. So if we can start just by asking you about how you'd resolve that conundrum. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, uh, that conundrum has actually been resolved many decades ago. Uh, um, uh, if you look at um, Europe, there are very clear examples of philanthropists owning newspapers. The most prominent one is the Scott Trust in the UK, which um, owns the Guardian and started with the Manchester Guardian. Uh, it's a philanthropy, it's a foundation which has given itself the mission to protect the mission of the Guardian, which is the newspaper it does. So in effect, there are examples of philanthropy money arriving into the subject of independent quality news, yet pushing that organizations to be self-sustainable while preventing that the mission, there is a mission drift. Mission drift could be uh, held by the board of the foundation, which owns it, but it also could be in terms of foreign uh, intervention to be buying into uh, into the newspaper that would divert from that. So I think it's it's what I meant in the article with that it is a it is a dilemma to 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 um, um, to solve. But it is a dilemma that has not been solved. If new philanthropists are arriving in this market, they ought to be aware of this, uh, this dilemma of, yes, you will come in. Yes, you will probably expect a return. Yes, you will expect a return also in terms of the mission. But there has to be some form of independence of letting um, the organization um, do its role. And at the Media Development Investment Fund, you actually have different models of philanthropic funding that you use to invest in um, independent media, including through mission-related investment and impact investing. Can you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. And linked to the first part of the question, which is how do we invest into the, uh, the organization, the companies, the newspaper companies, the TV companies, the radio companies, and emerging So, for first a few words. We've deployed $164 million in 31 countries. History, in, traditionally in countries that have a, a tradition of media oppression. 
We find these private companies that are independent, the due diligence is around them, and then we invest and drive them to some form of financial sustainability so that they are stronger financially and stronger editorially to play a changing role in their society. What we don't do is intervene into their editorial process. That is a golden rule inside NDIL. We come here and help you become, we will assess whether you are a bona fide independent media, but once we've assessed that and we do do a lot of due diligence to make sure that we are funding the right people, then we do not intervene solely on the strategic business part of the organization. Well, thank you. And that provides a, a philanthropic context. And to provide the context about developments in new media um, is Lisa Maria Neudert. You've been working at Oxford University on the phenomenon of fake news, or as you've been calling it, junk news. Can you say a little bit more about the forms it takes and the extent to which it's different from what we've seen before? So it's not so different to what we have seen before in terms of it is information um, that is false, it is information that is unfactual, it is information that is highly sensationalist and highly uh, hyper-partisan. Um, so that is not novel, but what is novel is the way that it spreads, um, which is over social media. Um, where we see a viral spread of that kind of information. And we do believe that that has something to do with the way that algorithms are promoting certain pieces of information over others. And there's an economic logic to that that's maybe propelling that, which is around the attention economy, as you call it. So how does that work? So the, the key idea here is that we are living in an age where we have more information than we have ever seen before. And those different pieces of information compete for attention. They compete for your human attention because this is how voices can make sure they are heard. And this is then also, for example, how a journalist out there can make sure that it has readers, um, how a platform can make sure that people are interested in their products. Um, and so to compete for attention, there are different techniques to hack attention, as well as human attention and also uh, algorithmic attention. And those techniques then um, are what we call computational propaganda. And how worried do you think we should be about this computational propaganda? I think we should be pretty worried um, because I think the way the computational propaganda works is when it exploits directly on larger systemical issues um, and this is how it feeds and how it sustains itself. Um, it has very much to do with social media algorithms, it has very much to do with our media ecosystem, with populist politics, um, with more personalized politics, um, but then also with uh, social divides, with inequality. Um, so it is very much a problem that is embedded in larger contexts. And before we address how those worries might be addressed, clearly there's a question about the extent to which there's comprehension about the issues, particularly given that we're at the European Foundation Centre here in Brussels, comprehension amongst philanthropic organisations and foundations. Now, you've just been speaking on a panel coordinated by the Odessian Foundation about these issues. To what extent do you think there's an understanding amongst the philanthropic community about uh, the extent of the risks that our democracy may face? I mean, it was a packed room um, and lots of people there asking interesting questions. Um, uh, do you think there's enough funding going to this area? Well, well you, there's two questions. One is there enough concern and then the funding yeah. we would expect. I think there's a beginning of a concern, but I think it comes from the people's personal experience as citizens. The director of a foundation will say, it's true, you know, and things are getting a little bit uh, on the border. As I said in my intervention, I think the fact that Hungary, there is no more 
very little left in terms of private independent media in that crop computational propaganda played a role and continue to play the role. Same thing for Poland, same thing for the Czech Republic, it's starting and now it's starting in Italy. There's even some, I've heard some rumors that even the vote for Bosch uh, in, in Ireland has actually been influenced by this form of computational propaganda. If you look at this dire picture I've just painted, and yes, there is concern in the room we were in today, I think there's not enough, I would argue. I think this is a very serious one. I used to say that the two main subjects for the next 50, for the past 10 years, I've been saying there's two subjects for the next 15 years, and it's not independent media. It was water and migration. I truly believe they've been superseded by trust. If we cannot speak to each other, we will not even solve the problem of water, climate change, or even uh, migration, because we won't agree on data, or as Isamari rightfully said, you know, facts don't matter. We won't even agree on facts. So, so what happens if a society, the tissue of a society collapses on the basic things that keeps it together is an, under, an understanding of what reality is. Well, one encouraging sign as far as maybe the philanthropic community is concerned is the announcement of a 4 million euro fund um, uh, backed by 18 foundations to improve, in part, to improve the quality of the public discourse, which really goes to the point about trust. Um, but the details are still to be worked out. So, um, Lisa Maria, what would you like to see those foundations using those 4 million euros, and potentially they may have more than 4 million euros over time, what would you like to see them doing to really address those issues that Patrice is referring to? So let me start by saying that I think there's a lot of work to do. Um, I think there is a lot of work to do into looking into different networks. Um, a lot of the research and also a lot of the regulation right now is surrounding the biggest and the largest networks. Twitter, for example, is where most research is being done on, but it's much more complicated to do research on Facebook, to do research on Instagram, to do research on WhatsApp, but that is really where the users are. So how can we think about um, thinking about those different social networks and the contexts they are used in? And then the second big uh, agenda for researchers, right now how we are framing this is a very US and EU centric problem. Um, but we do know that uh, fake news and that really inflammatory content um, have a huge impact right now in countries like Sri Lanka, for example. Um, so how can we think about extending our research into different global areas because it is truly a global issue? You also mentioned in the session about the importance of getting facts back to the table. Um, can you say a little bit more about what that would involve, what that means and what it would require? Yeah, so I am uh, German and in Germany we just have um, a new enforcement act, a network enforcement act, um, that obliges social media companies to take down content and to decide whether it is illegal or not. So this is not something that judges are doing anymore, it's not something that governments are doing anymore, but it is something that staff from Facebook, from Twitter, from Google have to decide on in a matter of hours. And I think it is quite clear that the way that decision was being made was not one where there was tech at the table, where there was civil society at the table, and where there were regulators at the table, and research at the table. And I think in the future when we're thinking about addressing these issues, I would wish for more debate and for more uh, discourse and conversation. Well, and that's one of the things that foundations could potentially do well, is to convene groups of people. Um, how important do you see that role, that convening role for foundations, bringing different groups to the table, Patrice? Yes, uh, listening to uh, Lisa Maria, um, we often think of foundations as money. 
But we should also think of foundation in terms of influence inside society. There are, in Germany, there are major foundations. That, and same thing in the Netherlands, same thing in France, to a certain extent, but certainly if you look at Germany. They have, a, they have a, a, a role, a voice in civil society, sometimes by their size, sometimes by their reputation and legacy and so forth. So on the subject of access to data, if society, if European society decides that having access to the logs of what has happened on these platforms is critical for democracy, there's no reason why social media platforms should be treated differently than an ISP. If an ISP is providing societal controversial matter, like child pornography and things like that, they are submitted to the, the law. And there's no reason. So I think having foundations not necessarily point to these types of examples, but say, as the voice in civil society, hey, this has to be addressed. It's not just a question of money. So yes, the convening power could actually serve to that purpose and so forth. That's one thing. Uh, but the uh, Are there any dangers of foundations assuming that convening power? Um, so Jessica Clark from the Media Impact Funders writing the yes. December issue talked about the fact that if foundations are to assume that power, then there's questions about their legitimacy in doing so and the extent to which they themselves are trusted. So. You know, philanthropic institutions, like other institutions, are under scrutiny in terms of levels of trust. Do you think they need to do more and be more transparent to be trusted to convene in this way, given their potential to do a lot of good on this issue? I would prefer, Charles, a world where philanthropy didn't have to get involved in that because of the one, the two hundred, the hundred years history of the market funding independent information, independent news. I would love that, but it's not the case. We are in a situation where. Um, I'll give you a very concrete example. Our, our organization has raised, uh, for the first time in my history at the organization, which is 17 years, we've raised over a million pounds from an asset manager from the city of London. An asset manager. And the reason I think the argument was clear was this a large asset manager, we're talking about five billion pounds of asset management. They said, yes, we'll invest in this. The reason is that I think one of the critical conversations was to say, if this falls, if the public debate, the conversation we have falls, everyone falls, the asset manager and the foundation. So yes, I would prefer a world where which philanthropy didn't have to get involved into that. But what are the stakes in front of us in this brand new world? Mm. And I think that has to be weighed against whether philanthropy should get involved. And you're nearer to philanthropy, Lisa Marie, because you're a researcher looking at these questions from an academic vantage point, but also influencing policy. What's your sense or perspective of philanthropy and foundations being involved in these issues, uh, is it? Well, definitely. Um, I think the, the question of legitimacy is one that I'm thinking about on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, specifically, the, the one that is moving me right now is um, that we have quite a few actors right now that are shaping our public discourse that do not have that kind of legitimacy. So specifically, I'm thinking about um, actors like a Facebook, like a Google that have billions of users, um, and the decisions that they're making, however, are not quite legitimized um, because they don't actually engage users. They don't actually um, engage civil society. Mm. And I but they right themselves now, are philanthropists in a sense because the owner of Facebook in another guise is acting as a philanthropist that may invest in programs that mm. would fund your research. I'm, I'm not so sure if I would agree with seeing them as a primary philanthropist. Yes. Um, but, 
But um, what I do think is that philanthropy definitely um, has a position at the table right now where they can build more of the discourse. And then, yes, okay, um, there's also questions about the legitimacy of these actors as well. Um, but I think right now we are in, in a position where we have such a strong imbalance that maybe the legitimacy that we should be most concerned about is another one. Mm. Which is? The one of the platforms, I think, at this point. If we agree then that, um, maybe some listeners won't, but um, philanthropy does have an important role, the stakes are high and there's legitimate que questions for others, mm -hmm. then there's a question for philanthropy about its particular role. And here some of the ideas have been raised are around experimentation. And you, Patrice, in um, uh, what you were saying earlier in the, in the panel, um, talked about this idea of the adjacent possible. The ideas about philanthropy helping to discover possibilities that are adjacent to existing realities but don't currently seen visible evident. Can you say a little bit more about what adjacent possibilities you might see for the most, if you like, venturesome of, or pioneering of philanthropists? I think the, um, what I was trying, the reason I use this notion of adjacent possibility, just to tell your, uh, your, your listeners, is that when, as an example of explaining it, uh, is that if you look at the Gutenberg press, Gutenberg, the Gutenberg press, it was a wine-making press with movable pieces that actually were invented in China. These were two different elements, created a press. There was no expectation that this would, the Bible publishing in vernacular language would have such a social impact, which by the way, we might be going to after this competition power being addressed notably. We might be going through this massive turmoil that the post, you know, the Gutenberg Press did of, of spreading a massive amount of information to, to people who didn't have it access because they didn't have access to Latin. But going back to the point, when the Gutenberg Press was invented, we didn't see the role that the Bible spreading out in vernacular language would have. And we certainly didn't see the role that the printing press would have in the debate. So in creating newspapers that would disseminate information more, more swiftly and so forth. That is the adjacent possible. When we didn't see it, but I believe that we are perhaps in the same situation where today philanthropy should help experiment and try to see what are the other things. But the adjacent possible also means something different. It's not inside the spectrum of where we are. Two examples. Will it be journalism who will replace the fact-driven conversation that we are having in our, in our society in the next 50 to 100 years? It could be, could not be. Is it going to be a gatekeeper? I'm looking at you, Charles, uh, as the editor-in-chief who decides what goes into the magazine, what does not go. It appears to me that the networking society we've been into, the young people are saying, I don't want an editor-in-chief to choose for me that. That's not a bad thing. That was actually a pretty good promise from Silicon Valley. It didn't bring everything, as Lisa Maria's work shows, that we thought would come. So the agenda possible was about Understanding that there may not be a gatekeeper, there may not be exactly the journalism version of what we'll have. There may be, so I think that's where philanthropy should probably, in this logic, fund experiments. What is it going to look like? And you, uh, will it involve activism, which is a bad word in, in, in the world of journalism? Will it involve, certainly, quality journalism? Will it involve government? Oh, that certainly is a bad word for me, but. I think we need to look at other possibilities, adjacent possibilities, to be able to solve the problem of civic media. Very interesting. And um, Lisa Marie, if I can put the very challenging question to you of what philanthropy or other actors might foresee that we can't see, 
Can you see any possibilities? What do you think the future might hold? The future in terms of the problem space or the future in terms of the solutions? Well, it might be that out of these problems um, come these new possibilities. So um, what possibilities and hopes uh, uh, do you see or do you think philanthropy should be trying to see? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, I think I am still a technology optimist. Um, I still do think that uh, social media and that also technology can actually increase democracy and can have uh, an impact for having more participation and uh, a wider and opener debate. Um, I do think we're at a very critical moment in time where we need to figure out how we want to use those technologies, um, how we want to um, shape those technologies to actually respond to what our civic needs are, to what our needs as a democratic society are. Um, and I think we have a couple of hurdles there. And I think those hurdles on the one hand are um, embedded in technological systems. They are embedded into content monetization. Um, they are embedded into how can we monetize uh, journalism again? How can we make sure that is sustainable? But then also, yeah, reach way deeper into into the overall structures of society and of our, our political political um, fabric. Um, so it is it is going to be a very big challenge that we have ahead of us. And I think it's not enough to point to a couple of solutions, but it's time that we think about not the systems, but that we think about the wider vulnerabilities and how they impact us. Patrice, you wanted to say finally. I, I, I want to react to, to, to what Isamar is saying about being a technology optimist. I think we are, but we are, I think I am too. But the big promise of Silicon Valley actually uh, came out of the, the hackers community of which Mark Zuckerberg is from. It came out of saying, well, if everything is connected and open, it'll be better. Food will taste better. Everything will be better. And I think that listening to the quote of the CTO, I believe it's one of the technologists, chief executive, something a few months ago, saying, the more we connect people, the better it will be. Now, there may be someone dying, there might be a terrorist attack, but it's not an exact quote, but I do have the exact quote. Listening to Lisa Maria, perhaps the, the adjacent possible is say, we're going to end up in a situation where people are going to say, technology is all bad, because if you do connect people, this is what happens. You get computational propaganda, you will get people attacking uh, it's not good to connect people all the time. History since Socrates has shown us that it's not always good to bring people together. We know the human journey on this. You're going to have this on one side. And the other side, you're going to have the amazing strides. I agree with Lisa Maria about the technology which is brought to our world. There are things that, 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 are, that, are, that, that are there today, uh, like Wikipedia. You can't even argue with it. We used to be 20 years ago, it used to be the, the biggest argument in the world. Today, nobody argues about Wikipedia. So I think perhaps the adjacent possible will be to make sure that we don't fall into this sort of polarized reality towards technology of saying, no, it's all computational propaganda. There has to be things, and perhaps finance to be clear role also there. In French, we say, separate l'orge de livret, separate the weed from the. You must know, Charles, this expression. The wheat from the chaff? Yes, precisely. Exactly. Well, if philanthropy is going to play a role, I'm assuming there's going to have to be a vibrant and sustainable philanthropy media, which includes Alliance, but, um, but not, not just Alliance. Um, and um, maybe it's on that note that we'll have to conclude our conversation. I'd like to thank um, you, Patrice Schneider of the Media Development Investment Fund, and 
Lisa Maria Noida at Oxford University for your contributions, not just to this particular podcast, but to your wide work and the importance of it. Um, Alliance Magazine, as I'm saying, I was saying, is proud to be part of that independent-minded civic media that we've been talking about. For more essential reading and listening for the global philanthropy community, please head to alliancemagazine.org to subscribe or indeed donate. We'll be back in the autumn to discuss donor-advised funds. What are they, and are they a good thing for philanthropy? Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.